Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Scott Morris of The Blue Tones, one of my all-time favourite bands of the 90s. The Blue Tones formed in Hounslow in Greater London in 93. They released Expecting to Fly in 96, which was released on their own uh, independent label, Superior Records. They had an amazing amount of success uh, in the UK and abroad. Scott talks a little bit about the whole writing process, how they got together, the early days of the band, how they were signed and managed in those formative years. It's actually coming up to the 25 year anniversary of Expecting to Fly in 2021 and they're touring that which is going to be excellent if all things go well in the world, fingers crossed. Anyway, as per usual I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about where you can find Back to Britpop on all the social media platforms and to do a bit of begging in terms of reviews and ratings. Until then, enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Scott Morris. How are you today? Hello, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm okay, thank you. How have you been coping with all this uh, isolation? Not too bad here. I'm, if your listeners may not know, but I live in Japan. And it's been a bit different here from what I've been um, hearing about in the UK. We didn't actually have a, an imposed lockdown in Japan. It was more... A kind of an advisory lockdown if you get my drift yeah the local councils and the local authorities just asking you to be cautious rather than actually forcing you sort of to social distance and stay at home but we have been mm. i think it was only like since february i think it was only two weeks ago that we actually went somewhere for the first time that was outside of a three mile radius oh wow that was about seven yeah about six seven months but um, found it okay. I got myself a PlayStation. <laughs> I didn't drink any alcohol for six months, which helped a little bit, I think, too. Yeah. Helped with staying healthy. But uh, that's, that's, that's all gone to shit now because I, <laughs> I got bored. But anyway, uh, enough doom and gloom about the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, thank you for coming on the podcast again to talk about one of my favourite bands um, of the 90s and obviously and beyond the 2000s, 2000s as well, the Blue Tones. You had quite an interesting story, I think, in, in terms of how you kind of launched your career because it, it was quite a quick rise to success, really, for you, wasn't it, in the in 96? Um, it may appear may have appeared to have been so, but it was a long process for us well, after we'd met our manager at the time, the manager who was our manager for the first sort of few years of the band, he kind of found us at a time when we'd had, we had about eight songs and we were quite good, but he said, like, don't play in London and don't play too many gigs. Just get, you know, get your sound up to scratch, get a few more songs. Mm. And he'll, he will sort of try and create a buzz somehow, you know, mm. we made a few demos. And it wasn't until he had a few people interested from the record companies in London that we actually started gigging in London. So it was a couple of years for us of sort of sitting in the wings, so to speak, and biding our time and just sort of getting better at playing. What were, you, were you doing then, just sort of um, booking rehearsal rooms every, living, every, every week? No, no, living on the dole. And we had a rehearsal, we had a soundproof garage in the house that we were all sharing, which we inherited from Dodgy. Yeah, Dodgy lived on the same estate as mine and mine and Mark's grandparents. Ah. And so we kind of got to know them. And one by one, as they moved out of this house they were sharing, we sort of moved in. And it was a couple, a few years of just basically hanging out with them a lot, playing and practicing and doing other 
recreational activities together. <laughs> you, you and Mark, obviously, growing up, were you um, sort of conscious that you wanted to, to do music full time? Uh, and, and kind of, and if so, what kind of age do you think? Very early on, from about, I mean, for me, when it really became something I wanted to do was after seeing the Lars for the first time. Mm. So I probably would have been about fourteen, maybe, seeing them supporting a band called All About Eve in Hammersmith. Yeah. And they were great and they stuck with me. Mark sort of joined a band with a friend of of his and they needed a bass player. And so I just said, oh, I'll pick up the bass, I'll learn the bass. And then we met Adam, who was in another local band around that sort of time. And that's kind of when, that's the sort of the first sort of kernel of what became the Blue Tones is when me and Mark met Adam. Yeah. Did you have all sort of similar um, musical tastes? Were you kind of listening to the same sort of music growing up? There was a crossover, you know, that, you know, you could put it in a Venn diagram and there's, there's a crossover. You know, we, we had our separate tastes, but there was a lot of stuff that we all liked as well. Mm. And there's a lot, you know, a lot of sharing, a lot of discovery, especially for me, because I was the youngest and Mark and Adam had much more of a vast knowledge of music going sort of way back and they both have huge record collections and I just used to listen to theirs and not, I didn't have to buy anything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so you kind of had a, a kind of an inkling that this was something that you wanted to do full-time and, and for real and and yeah. I guess how did you kind of uh, approach management then were you kind of uh, just looking it's, for someone to help or did they come for you? Really. No, we just we just wanted we thought we were ready to go out so we like I say we had about seven or eight songs and we were playing, as a lot of bands do, the, uh, is it the Bull and Gate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I think is gone now, isn't it? Don't know. Anyway, so we played a gig there to about 14 people and, you know, got in the car and went back home again. And I think it was, I don't know how many months later, eight months, nine months later, when we went back for a second gig there, the guy who worked the door said, oh, someone left you a phone number last time you were here. This is like before mobile phones and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. So, so he said, someone left you a phone number, you should call him. And it was this guy who was a manager who just wanted to get in touch. So it was just chance that he happened to be there the f- when we played a London gig. Yeah. And the second time we played one months later, we got his number. <laughs> so uh, that, that happened. It's crazy how, how things worked uh, before mobile phones yeah. and computers, isn't it? How you used to just to give people leaflets and post-it notes and stuff and it but it still yeah, worked it still worked problem was because we were on the dole and living in the same house and we couldn't afford our phone bills our phone was cut off so no one could contact us anyway um, oh, god it's yeah, crazy we went, we went back there physically and the guy was like oh yeah I've still got this number from months ago you guys must have been quite excited to, to have had some sort of man- management uh, interest that early on i think at the time we were very sort of skeptical about anybody who was interested because we were worried about being ripped off yeah you're quite cynical then as well uh, um. uh yeah health you know a healthy dose of cynicism i think about Good. everything at that time as well there were like a lot of our f- sort of bands that we that we liked that were sort of our contemporaries or bands that we that we were listening to that were current when we were sort of getting things together hmm. they're all on indie labels and they're all, they all seem to have like complete creative freedom hmm. and you know didn't look like they were necessarily making tons of money but they looked like they were having a great time and making a living and also around that sort of time major labels couldn't break sort of cool or 
bands or indie bands or anything like that as much as they tried it just wasn't working for them so we definitely had a, a mindset that we wanted to be sort of on an independent label maybe even create our own label and do it that way definitely didn't want to go with a major because mm. you found you found fierce panda initially am i right in terms of uh, the first two singles well fierce panda sort of found us that was someone from the enemy and they just wanted to put out i think uh yeah some exciting new stuff like i think yeah, the one we were on was i think of four songs on it wasn't there by four different bands what, what went out on fierce panda was a demo anyway ah uh, right but then a and m records came along yeah so that was what it was a and m records so we were very skeptical of a major but because they agreed to put it out under our own label so it kind of appeared like an independent record label we went with it because it, it had the right sort of optics if you know what I mean. your, your own label um then was that because you said that was something that you really really wanted to pursue the superior quality recordings um yeah. how did that work then did you just have full create uh, creative uh, well sorry not creative but did you have full like res- not responsibility but control in in some sort of way we had a lot of control it was it was like um i mean we were still on a major record label so they were still interested in what we were doing you know, yeah. to make sure we weren't being completely sort of up our own asses. <laughs> but we did have, you know, if we wanted to sign someone, we could have t- put, given, you know, drawn their attention to them. And if they liked it, they, they, we could have signed them to our label if yeah. we wanted to. And there were a few signings, I think. I think Geneva were one of them, weren't they? Uh, yeah, well, they were talking to me about... Um... Uh, yourselves as well uh, on the recent podcast about the sort of camaraderie there and then I know they got signed to Nude of, uh, of Records eventually it's quite interesting isn't it how how some bands form relationships in sort of the early times because you I can you know when I was looking back at you know the 90s and the, the, the bands that um, I was into you kind of assume that everybody's gets on with each other and is, is friends. But there was also quite a lot of rivalry, wasn't there, between bands uh, around around that time. Would you say there was yeah. something that you were kind of familiar with or happened to you? The rivalry? Yeah. Oh, or, or... only kind of like, for us, it was a bit of a, it was just something that kept us amused. It was, uh, wasn't any real rivalry. We didn't really care about it mm. to a great deal, but it was funny. But I guess was, I think it was menswear for a little while for, with us at the very, the very early stages, just because like, we shared a rehearsal space with them in Camden. Oh, we we used the rehearsal space, and they also used it from time to time. And I th- there was some messages in graffiti on the on the door, on the back of the door, the rehearsal space, that <laughs> <laughs> giving each other kind of nasty messages. But it was all in fun, I think. It was. It's, it's funny how I think, uh, especially the music press uh, at the time would, would pick up and probably r- like, like nowadays really with the press would run with that sort of storyline and, and uh, really hype up all the, all the competition between the bands. But in reality, I guess it probably wasn't quite like that. In reality, we, we had nothing really to do with them, didn't know them personally, didn't, didn't, we didn't really, they, they were all from Camden, we were in Hounslow, which is, you know, Right, right out near Heathrow Airport. So, yeah, there were no actual dealings with anybody. <laughs> Writing new material for, you know, following up that first album, how, how did that happen? Were you on the road a lot and doing it or did you... We couldn't, no, we were, we were not, I mean, we never have been able to write on the road 
just never worked for us. Too many distractions, I think. So yeah, we for us it was always once all the touring had finished and once there was a period of time where we could just get together in a room, you know, so it was a long process. It was, you know, it took a long time for us to, yeah. It wasn't that we didn't have any ideas or it, that once we got together, it didn't, didn't really take a long time. It's just that, yeah, we couldn't write when we were gigging or touring at all. Are there a few, a few moments, um, you know, on that first sort of tours that you were having and first sort of TV appearances and things where you, that you remember strongly at being, bit crazy or um when you all looked at each other and thought crikey this is happening sort of thing yeah the, uh, the one that springs to mind is when we went to thailand we've only been to thailand once we did one gig in bangkok and we were in the middle of a sort of a little stint in japan and we flew over to thailand for to bangkok for a couple of nights just to do one gig and then back to japan for some press but when we got off the plane at bangkok and there were a few hundred people waiting to meet us, which was really odd. And then they were sort of grabbing at our clothes and hair and stuff like that as we tried to pass through them to get to passport control. Mm. And then immediately before we even left the airport, we were sort of led into a room which was full of press and sat behind the table like a press conference, which we'd never done before or since. And it was just crazy. And really didn't know how to handle it to be honest with you mm. take any of it seriously at all but it was, it was fun but yeah that was that was when we were really like what the hell is going on here you know yeah 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 when when you get such a, a sort of a, a big uh, initial startup like that and, and big success were your kind of expectations set that or were you i know you guys were very cynical and dry about everything anyway was there like a like a gradual decline in terms of how you were dealing with things as things started to pitter down towards sort of the end of the 90s and then sort of mid mid 2000s in what in what sense are you talking about uh, like so emotion? yeah emotionally what well, you know, like coping with that and, and like a initial massive uh, uh success it doesn't feel like it was massive success to be honest i mean it was it was big success at first which didn't last very long <laughs> yeah it was kind of like a you know, uh, there, was a, there was a very short peak, a very thin peak, which was that first album and Slight Return coming out. And it did go back down to a manageable level quite quickly. You know, mm. the second album as well was got a, a lukewarm reception at best, I think. I don't know if, what, what people were expecting, but it wasn't, obviously wasn't what a lot of people were expecting. It did very well in terms of chart and success and really, uh, you know, in chart positions and sales, yeah. though, didn't it? It went gold in the end, didn't it? It did in the end, yeah, it did go gold. Were you thinking of moving away sort of in terms of some of that early sound for that, that record or the last chart saloon? Were you thinking of evolving your sound and you weren't necessarily going for the releasing the same again as kind of what a lot yeah, of we, major labels? Yeah, we were conscious of not just making the same record again. That's definitely mm. something we wanted not to do, which probably would have been a, a, a wise thing to do looking back on it. Because we, we wanted to maintain the success, but we, want, we, we thought we could kind of manipulate our audience into liking what we like. <laughs> you know, change with us, come with us, we'll take you on a journey kind of thing, and it didn't really work out that way. Yeah, because we were getting into some slightly heavier sounding stuff a little bit at that time. We were listening to a lot more Amer American music, um, mm. contemporary American music. And I think a lot of the 
in terms of the evolution of the band and the sound, Luxembourg, sorry, Science and Nature and Luxembourg came out in 2000 and 2003. And that evolution is really clear in Luxembourg, which is, I think, is an amazing album. I still listen to it now. It's got some fantastic tracks on it. So it's such an evolved sound. And I think probably one of my favorites that you've released. But And you can really hear the American influence in that, I think. Yeah. That was partly out of necessity, the, the way that album turned out, because we didn't have any money and we had to record something very quickly and we couldn't really afford to spend a lot of time writing or recording it. So it was kind of like, well, let's just strip everything down mm. and have it like, you know, no more than two guitars, you know, that kind of thing, certain rules that we put in place just to keep, make, make sure it was quick and cheap. Mm. And yeah, it, it turned out that way because we didn't have the luxury of time to sort of layer the guitars up and because that's one of the things we we were guilty of in for the first three albums we had we had we had a luxury of we could spend three months making a record if we wanted to and a lot of that time was taking up with guitars getting the guitar sounds right and we just didn't yeah. have that with luxembourg it was just, just go in and blam it down you know and so i guess yeah, you were touring uh, still. You were you were uh, doing. You were quite active on the live circuit, weren't you? All the way up to sort of two thousand and ten, and New Athens was released. Yeah, that's right. But but that's when it started to get to the point where touring, new, yeah, around New Athens, touring was starting to lose money, and so it became sort of something we couldn't really continue doing. Mm. We had families and other things to think about. You know, you can't just disappear for five or six weeks and come back, you know, in debt. <laughs> yeah, we had to knock it on the head. Was that quite That's a hard decision or was that quite something that was uh, obviously a oh, no-brainer? It's a very difficult decision. No, none of us wanted to stop. But someone said to us at the time, someone who turns out was right, they just said, look, you know, split up and do a farewell tour, have a little bit of money and wait a few years and you'll be able to come back and, uh, you know, Ticket prices will go up, sort of thing. The yeah. audiences will go up, and they were right. It sort of, you know, it seems a bit sort of calculating and everything. But if we had carried on just trying to tour a couple of times a year, it, we were just running to the ground. How did you sort of make that transition then from the sort of mad touring life and music life to sort of a, a, a you know a daily normal existence, if that makes sense? <laughs> I mean, you just kind of had to. There was, yeah. wasn't any choice, really. You you still um, get together, don't you, online and things? I know during this the sort of pandemic and things, you've been doing these uh, uh, sort of Zoom or Skype uh, meetings, oh, yeah. which have been quite entertaining. Did those? Did they? Yeah, they they were. They may have the appearance of being recorded live and at the same time, but yeah, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The audio is the audio that's recorded on each everybody's phone, but everyone's doing it completely different time to each other. Yeah, yeah. It's, together in an editing package and yeah. yeah it's hard to do are you still sort of doing music uh, nowadays is something that you're still interested in yeah yeah i mean we were supposed to get together this uh, march but we were we were going to be doing a little tour in a, a short tour of australia and new zealand and before that we were going to get together for a week and sort of start writing some new songs and of course everything got cancelled so we're, we're all sitting on demos that we want to sort of knock into some shape oh wow you know, we don't know what's going to come of it you know you never really mm. know um i think that there's potential there to put something together maybe 
at the very at the very least an EP, but I think we can make an album. Yeah. Possibly. But it's just don't know how we're going to afford it, and it's, it's now I live in Japan. It's difficult to find the time to get together. What is it you do in Japan at the moment? Then are you sort of still well, working with the music? No, I was um, about 10, 12 years ago, I started to um, learn how to do animation. So I've been, about 10 years, I've been a freelance animator. And I was working sort of remotely anyway. Hmm. And so when the time came to move to Japan, it didn't really make any difference to the amount of work I was getting. I've just been doing that since like, the last six years, doing you know, that from here, working for British you know, studios. And I can take it with me. So if the band tour, I can just take my laptop and my all the gear I need and I can work as I'm traveling too. So hopefully then we'll, we'll see a tour on an album next year then, fingers crossed. Well, it just depends. I mean, like the, the plan was is like whenever we were going to get together to rehearse and to tour, we were going to spend some of that time working on new stuff. Yeah. And then hopefully if we had enough money per side, we could book a session with someone and start. It's just, just this, yeah, whenever this pandemic, you know, whenever things... Yeah, the world becomes safe again. We'll, we'll get yeah. back. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to to hearing new stuff and and seeing you guys again on the road. It would be amazing. So, I really really appreciate your time this morning talking to me about uh, what you've been up to and, and all sorts. Sorry, the early days of the band. And um, yeah, pleasure actually. Uh, thanks thanks for joining me. No worries. Bye bye. Thanks again to Scott. That was an amazing chat. Really appreciate him taking the time out. Uh, to speak to me. Here's your reminder that if you haven't already done so, please go onto Apple iTunes and give us a five-star rating and write a review. It really does help. I say it every week uh, without wanting to sound like a broken record. It does make a big difference in terms of getting up the ladder. Also, if you want to get involved in all the social media gubbins you can do, uh, just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. I may have mentioned on the previous uh, podcast that there's going to be about a couple left of this season. Um, there's actually going to be a few more if I can wrangle it. But then we'll be sort of winding down towards November time. So until then, take care of yourself. See you later.